Our first storyteller tonight is Jessica Bogard, and Jessica moved to Juneau in 2013. She loves sewing, cooking, reading, archery, guns, and long walks on the beach. Jessica is quirky, but it works for her. P.S. Sometimes she bites. Please welcome Jessica. <laughs> Smokin' Oakum, also known as the 1950s Hollywood version of Son of a Monkey, was featured in the film Westward the Women. Now, Westward the Women is this epic tale where single women go across in wagons to get to California to marry men. <laughs> Life goals. So, when other children were watching The Simpsons and Friends, my parents believed in watching the golden age of Hollywood. So I got to watch Western The Women, featuring Smoke and Oakum, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which of course led me to believe that if I waited long enough and ended up in the Oregon Territory, I could marry a flannel-wearing, dancing lumberjack. <laughs> if that didn't work out, he would eventually kidnap me, we'd spend a winter together, Stockholm Syndrome would set in, and we'd have a shotgun marriage and live happily ever after. So, smoke and oakum I got from Westward the Women. I learned to cook because obviously if you're going to spend a winter with a singing lumberjack, you should feed them. But because it was the golden age of Hollywood, I had to hold the mixer like this so you could see what I was making. This worked very well when I was too small to reach the counter, so I would mix on the ground. But when I developed curves, things get in the way of looking this awesome. But I still had hope. So the next thing that caught my interest was The Man from Snowy River. Now, The Man from Snowy River was a Disney movie set in Australia in the 1800s, and there was someone named Jessica. <laughs> she had curly hair like I do, and she played piano, but she whined a lot. And that didn't really work for me. So I enjoyed the lead male character because he got to have a whip and ride horses. So this led to the fun Christmas conversation of what do you want for Christmas, Jessica? Well, I would like an Australian bullwhip, please. <laughs> now you would think my parents, being that we lived in California, would be like, eh, it's a little awkward, how about a remote control Jeep? Instead, dad was like, challenge accepted. So there I was, my little self, mixing cake and believing that I could dance with people who wore flannel, and then I got a bullwhip, because I could. And my sister's sitting in the corner just thinking I'm weird. Now, she liked Jem, and she had like all the Barbies, and I figured out how to pop the Barbies' heads off without ruining the plastic, because then you could hear your sister scream, but then you could put it back together and just look cute. I don't know why she's upset. She doesn't have a lumberjack. <laughs> so it progressed. So I really wanted to go to Australia because if I couldn't have a lumberjack, I could have a cowman. But then I learned to read. And that brought me that Australia was home to the seven deadliest creatures. No, that wasn't happening. 
I don't want spiders. I wanted a bullwhip and to shoot guns. This, no. So I progressed in my movie watching and I returned to the original hobbies. I'd figured out the whole cooking thing and my grandmother sewed, but in Westward the Women, before they got to wear pants and shoot people, which I found enjoyable, they got to knit. Well, my great-grandmother knew how to knit, so we would hang out with my great-grandmother, and I would tell her, the good old days just seemed awesome. You got to shoot things, you could make cake, you could have a bullwhip if you asked for one for Christmas. And she just looked at me in this pitying way. Jessica, the good old days were not good. I was very confused by this while still trying to make a scarf, multitasking. And I was like, okay, Grandma, why weren't they good? Because while watching all of these epic tales, my dad would tell me about the women of my family who came across in wagons, who settled in cabins, and worked in lumber mills, and knew people like Two Finger Joe. Again, worth going. But Grandma informed me that the good old days involved polio tuberculosis, a couple of world wars. And since her husband had been a doughboy and helped train her son to go to the second world war, she was not a fan. So being that I could read and I verified all of the facts, I understood that I no longer wanted a time machine to go and live in the wild, wild west. I enjoyed inside plumbing and not having tuberculosis. So I negotiated with my great grandmother how could I get to do all of this stuff, but still get hot baths and power washing machine? So she informed me I could have all of these fun hobbies. I didn't have to have a time machine, but I had to keep my weirdness on a lower level. So I learned to pass for normal in that when I lived in California, I did not admit that I knew how to draw from a holster, or that a lever action was my favorite rifle, <laughs> or that I had a cannon that if you put black powder in it, it goes poof, and a little cannonball comes out, and there's a smoke cloud. So much fun. Instead, they'd be like, what did you do in the holiday? Well, I watched movies. Did you like the movies? Sure. They were very good. And my sister's like, you didn't go to the, yes I did, because I'm being normal. The fun thing is that I went to this college in Oklahoma where gun-toting people are normal. And then we lived in Alaska where you guys don't find it too odd. The bullwhip still gets a little weird. <laughs> also, what gets weird is I'm single. So when you lead with you shoot guns and have a bullwhip, <laughs> you get questions. And they usually just lead to me going, that's awkward, stop asking. Which is why I'm still single. But I know all about smoke and oakum, and I can cook, and I can sew, and I can pull from a holster. So my hobbies are interesting, it's just that I have now embraced the weird, and you all know about it.
Our next speaker is Liz Eilers. Liz has two superpowers, neither of which she can disclose to the general public. She is a self-professed small town girl, lover of cold climates, and corgis. Her claim to fame is that Sandra Day O'Connor has eaten her flourless chocolate tort. Mm, she didn't bring any to share with us. She is the most dangerous thing on the streets at any given moment and an artist with buttercream frosting. Liz considers herself a dangerous combination of confidence, imagination, and impulse. And she's a mudroom's virgin, so give her a round of applause. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Just kidding. Always wanted to do that. Thanks. So, in the summer of 2002, I survived the Big Fish Blaze forest fire in Colorado. I was a teenager who was desperate to get out of her hometown and have an adventure. I accepted a job offer through the Caretaker's Gazette to work at the Trapper's Lake Lodge, which is located in the Flattops Wilderness, also known as the Birthplace of the Wilderness Act. My parents and I drove out there, being that it was the furthest I would ever be from home and the longest I would ever be away from home. Uh, they were gonna help me get settled in. So we drive 20 hours out to Trapper's Lake Lodge, which is basically a lodge at the end of a dirt road, which butts up against 235,000 acres of wilderness with a capital W which means there's no motorized use, there's no cell phones, there's no internet reception, there's nothing. And as we're driving out here, I'm of course envisioning what my summer is gonna be like, and I'm thinking I'll be working with people like myself, college-age kids on break from school, peers, people that have their teeth, and um, <laughs> the little things. Turns out, when you have a very remote lodge in the middle of the mountains of Colorado that butts up against 235,000 acres of wilderness, you get what you get, and you hope they're not a serial killer, or at least a serial killer yet, like still at cat status, maybe. And um, <laughs> needless to say, my parents were a little perturbed, a little nervous, because it was essentially like meth heads and Vietnam War vets and bull riding retired bull riding champ. It was middle-aged men. <laughs> Creepy. And uh, they tried to convince me, obviously, to abort the mission, come on back to Illinois and we'll figure out a plan B. And I was much more fearful of that because it doesn't pencil out. How was I going to go back to Macomb and say to all these friends that I'd raved about this job, oh, oh I was scared of my coworkers. The, the, you know, lame. So I was like, nope, nope, mom and dad, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna stick it out, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm here, this is where I wanna be because the, the area is gorgeous. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, the entire reason why it's known as the birthplace of the Wilderness Act is because in 1919, Arthur Carhart was slated to survey Trapper's Lake for a private lakeside community uh, once he had surveyed the land, he went back to his bosses and pitched an unprecedented notion, laying the foundation for the Wilderness Act as we know it, and basically deemed Trapper's Lake an irreplaceable resource. 
It's a 300-acre lake formed from a caldera of a volcano. It's surrounded by volcanic cliffs. Uh, first and foremost, the amphitheater is home to the, natis, the largest native elk herd in Colorado, and it's the largest breeding ground for cutthroat Colorado trout. It's unbelievable. So the next six weeks consisted of me simultaneously falling in love with the area and Colorado and having legitimate anxiety and fear of my coworkers. So, because I was the only female within a five-mile radius, they throw me behind the bar, makes sense, at 19. I put the red wine in the fridge, because what's it doing out? It needs to be refrigerated. I, don't, I didn't know. And the ranch down the road, known as the Rio Blanco Ranch, in terms of nightlife, they had two choices. They could either go 60 miles down the road to the Sleepy Cat Ranch, or they could come five miles up the road to Trapper's Lake Lodge and Bar. So, you know, it's easier to convince a DD to go five miles than 60. So I got to meet the staff at the Rio Blanco Ranch, and they promptly wanted to know what I was doing there at Trapper's Lake Lodge as the reputation had preceded itself. And I let them know that I accepted a job there, I was from out of town, etc. And the staff and Rio Blanca Ranch consequently rescued me and offered me a position in the kitchen. I accepted because I was like, yes, this is it. This is how I'm gonna get out of Trapper's. Like these people have their teeth and they're what I envision. They're Right, they're 19-year-olds like myself, they're college students, they have parents that love them, et cetera. So I accepted the job, didn't ask anything about what Rio Blanca Ranch was about whatsoever. I was like, I can make some muffins and take people's place, it'll be great. Got down there, and lo and behold, it's Warren Buffett's private fly fishing ranch. So I got to meet the likes of Sandra Day O'Connor and Tom Brokaw and the original investors of Shell Oil the complete opposite of what Trapper's Lake Lodge was. Then, six weeks go by, and I'm wondering how I landed in this place. It's 10 miles of private fly fishing ranch. It's the most gorgeous area. This is a place where billionaires spend a week of their summer. I got to spend the entire summer. And as I'm working there, wondering how I got so lucky, a forest fire is ignited by lightning in the wilderness area. And because it's the wilderness and you gotta let nature run its course, it burned, baby burned. Forest fires, when they get to a certain size, tend to create their own weather and can actually change the wind patterns. So that is exactly what happened during the big fish blaze. It doubled overnight, uh, one fateful night in mid-August, and woke up on the morning of my 20th birthday to us evacuating our billionaire guests and recruiting 100 firefighters from the lines in Denver and then also being evacuated to the arena, which didn't feel so safe. The arena was actually just kind of like a stable, I guess is how you could describe it. Needless to say, it wasn't like we were spectators of something off, off in the distance. The fire was right there. And uh, Trapper's Lake Lodge did burn down to the ground. Can't say wasn't kind of satisfying watching that as it had been such a creepy, so it was like watching the Stanley Hotel burn probably from The Shining, it was creepy. <laughs> yeah, 
Uh, <laughs> so we hosted some firefighters for the next few weeks. They were able to save Warren's Ranch as the fire circumnavigated around us. The best way I could describe it is the next time you're out on Couch Beach or North D and you're creating a bonfire, picture yourself living in the middle of it. And that's what it's like. Uh, we were able to uh, take our horses, save the horses. They got down to their wintering grounds closer to town. All in all, I believe 17,000 acres burned. And now, today, that part of Colorado is thriving. It's one of the healthiest ecosystems in the state because it's not vulnerable to the beetle kill that's going on. And because of that experience, I have a very unique perspective on what it means to burn down to the ground and then rise from the ashes and thrive. Our next speaker is Laura Zahasky. Laura has grown up in Juneau and been performing for about 10 years with the Alaska String Band, Marion Call, Josh Lockhart Band, and any music configuration she can finagle her way into, including being a Mudrooms musician. musician. This winter, she's been moonlighting as the giant T-Rex you may have seen hanging out at Eagle Crest. Hashtag, <laughs> hashtag goals, excited for her first Mudrooms. Here's Laura. <clears throat> Thank you. Did everyone enjoy Folkfest? It was so fun. Well, I've heard a lot about Australia tonight, which is very fitting because my story encompasses Australia and what it means to see an Australian man who is very smoking hot. So about three or four years ago, I had the opportunity to travel with my family, our musical group, to Australia. We did a three and a half month tour. And before leaving, I was hanging out with my friend Lacey and she said, Laura, I want you to bring me an Australian man. <laughs> Ever since Chris Hemsworth starred in Thor, people from across, women from across the country and world have been flocking to the Australian continent. So naturally, I was very excited to see these men in real life. We got to the Port Ferry Folk Festival, our first gig. It was 60,000 people, and I stepped on stage, very excited to see the people for the first time. I looked out into the audience, and it was like a sea of Chris Hemsworth. It's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And then they started talking. I was like, oh my gosh. But later in our tour, we were playing a small festival up in the mountains. People didn't have their teeth, it's very exciting. But I was hanging out at the, the instrument booth, playing fine instruments, and there are two kinds of people when it comes to owning instruments. There are people who don't necessarily play instruments, but they have real jobs, and they can afford really nice instruments. And then there are people like myself who are musicians and play music full time, but don't have any money, so can't afford instruments. So I played the instruments at the booth. I was playing this wonderful mandolin when all of a sudden this man walks up to me and he just says, you and this mandolin have a deep spiritual connection. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what just happened? <laughs> he kept talking for about five minutes. I can't remember anything he said. I think I blocked it from my memory. 
it's a dark time. But I eventually ex escaped, ran outside, I went sightseeing with my parents, and we were walking around the same town later that afternoon, and who should appear but the mandolin spiritualist himself. He runs over and immediately introduces himself to my parents, and before I knew what had happened, he had invited us out for coffee with him and his brother. So we start walking up the hill to the coffee shop. Creepy stalker dude, his brother, my mother, my father, and myself. It was the best first date ever. <laughs> so as we're sitting in the coffee shop, I'm sitting on this bench, and he's sitting next to me, and my parents are directly across the table from us. And we're sitting there drinking coffee. We find out that he and his brother are in town for the festival and that they own a winery. Props to them. But he starts scooching ever so slightly across the bench towards me. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I scooch away, and he scooches closer. And I scooch away. He had some nerve, because not only were we complete strangers, but he was sitting across the table from my parents. <laughs> it's like, who are you? So it got desperate. It turned into this one-cheek situation, one on, one off the bench. <laughs> I was like, what do I do now? So I jumped up and I was like, I'm gonna go get more coffee. He's like, let me buy you this coffee. Normally I would say no just because I was so creeped out, but coffee, coffee is not just a beverage. Coffee is a lifestyle. Coffee is an elixir. Coffee gives magical powers. So I said yes, I had three more cappuccinos. <laughs> coffee does very exciting things to me. Earlier on that same trip, one day I had four or five shots of espresso and I made myself a Twitter page. By the time the caffeine worn off, I was like, what's Twitter? <laughs> I still have it. I don't remember the password. I don't know how to use Twitter, but it's there. <laughs> so after our wonderful coffee date, he and his brother promised to come see our show that night. Naturally, I was thrilled at the prospect of seeing them again. So we get, I walk off stage after the show that evening and back out into the audience just to visit with people after the show. And he immediately finds me, hang on just a sec, this one's for the paper. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you saw the paper this week. <laughs> I was at the doctor yesterday and the doctor was like, you were on the front page. Apparently I don't read the paper, I had no idea. <laughs> but I walked out into the audience to start talking to people and this guy walks up, same creepy stalker mandolin dude. He's like, let me buy you a beer. It wasn't coffee, so I was like, no, I'm okay, thanks, thanks, I'm good. And he says, well, I already bought you one, and he shoves it into my hand. And then he launches into this long dissertation about how it has always been his lifelong ambition to go on a bear hunting expedition in Alaska. And then he looks me in the eyes and he says, will you embark on this journey with me? <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> What is happening? <laughs> now, I don't even go on bear hunts with people that I like. <laughs> I shot a ptarmigan once and I was completely mortified. I was like, the poor bird. So it may have been the shock of being asked by this guy who is really starting to creep me out and it may have been the mass amounts of caffeine that were pulsating through my system at that time. But my response was, I don't like going into the wilderness with strange men in case they're ax murderers. He didn't like that. He told me that it was very judgmental and that I was just as likely to be an axe murderer. When looking back, I don't think that was the case. 
She was the one who asked me to go into the wilderness with him after knowing me for five hours. <laughs> so I extracted myself from the situation with an excuse about, I have to rotate the van tires, I'll see you later, in the next 300 years. I walked backstage and started loading instruments into the van after our show, and I had the beer and I set it on the floor of the van. So I walk back into the hall to get some more stuff to load into the van, and as I'm inside, my dad runs and jumps in the van and drives off into the sunset, taking my beer with him. Well, as he's driving back to the hotel to unload the instruments, he drops the map on the floor and has to like lean down to pick it up, and as he's leaning over, he like veers across the center line, and the veering causes an eruption in the back seat. The bottle erupts and the floodgates open and the beer spills all over the floor. Well, it just so happens that as he was making this journey across the center line, he drove by a police officer. <laughs> so the lights go on, he pulls him over, the cop walks up to the window and he is greeted by essence of brewery wafting out of the van window into his face. Excuse me, sir, have you been drinking? No. Have you been, do you, I know it's the accent, you're American. Have you been drinking? <laughs> no. Sorry, sir, you're gonna need to get out of the car. So he makes him walk the chalk line. He walks it perfectly. He must have thought he just had superpowers since the entire van smelled like a distillery. So he took a breathalyzer test and he got off scot-free. And I just love that the guy who asked me to go bear hunting in the wilderness made my dad almost get a DUI. <laughs> Thank you. Our next speaker is Adam Berkey. Adam shocked the community when in October of 2014, he wrote an article in the Juno Empire outing himself as a marijuana-loving, pot-smoking fifth grade teacher. He's an outspoken advocate for legal marijuana and will be the first to admit that he really, really, really likes weed. <laughs> I'm not sure if he'll share or not. I'm Adam Berkey. You might have heard of me as described. I am the guy who was a fifth grade teacher once upon a time and decided to tell the town of Juneau through the empire that I smoke weed. It made me quite popular for a short while around town in the most controversial way possible. Yeah, um, it, a lot of people in town had the same question when I did it. Like, what the hell were you thinking, Berkey? Like, basically, that was all of you. What were you thinking, right? And I couldn't answer. A lot of people asked that question, and I needed a lot of time to think about it. I knew when I did it, I knew that there was a reason, but I didn't have an answer. Tonight I'm gonna give you that answer. But you have to go back in my life with me, hear about me a little bit. Let's go back in time. My name is Adam Berkey. I grew up in Ketchikan, Alaska. I did not grow up in a marijuana household. There are people who think I grew up in some kind of commune in a Volkswagen van, and we all smoked weed, and that's not true. That's not how it went down. I grew up in a very, very normal Ketchikan home. But that's not, that's not nice. That's not nice at all. 
We don't have time for this. I grew up in a normal Ketchikan house. We drank in Ketchikan. We drink. We didn't get high. We, we drank at my house. My dad owned a bar. There were basically two rules in life. Marijuana and AA are terrible for business, and we will not condone either of those things in this house. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I drank. I was a drinker. Anybody who knew me in Ketchikan, they knew me as a drinker. I drank so much by the time 1997 rolled around and I was 20 years old, I'd already pickled myself. I guess it's funny. Um, when uh, <laughs> I drank so hard that a small scar came in the front of my brain and doctors don't know exactly why. All that they know is with my drinking, uh, it made a perfect condition for epilepsy. I have frontal lobe, grand mal, epilepsy, small scar on the front of my brain. At, in 1997, when I was 20, my childhood doctors said, you're going you're gonna to either sober up, you're going to die. That's what it is. That's what it is. Sobered up in 1997, never had another drink again. And um, it, I thought it was done. I'm normal. I don't drink anymore. I can't do it. I'm not good at it. I just don't do it. Epilepsy stayed. Alcoholism left me with one tiny present. Every once in a while, for no reason whatsoever, I'd have a grand mal seizure, drop to the ground, have full convulsions. If you don't know epilepsy, epilepsy is a monster. There's the obvious things where you drop and you're shaking and it's like having a whole workout. That sucks. There's waking up to an EMT who's like, hey, man, do you know your name? Do you know what year it is? Do you know who the president is? And you don't know. Those, yeah, that sucks. But that's not why I hate epilepsy. When I have a grand mal seizure, I reset emotionally. I've only had seizures as an adult, and each time I come out of it as a grown man, but who's got the emotional skills of like a six-year-old. Right? Frightened to death to go anywhere. My wife gets to rebuild this mess. That would be bad enough. But when I was six, I was just coming out of being molested as a child for two years by a man my family really trusted. So that emotional mess I get to come back to, can't go to a store, can't be left alone, could barely make it to college classes, and somehow with all of this going on in my life, I got through college at UAF. Now, with my hatred of marijuana, which made you stupid, and my hatred of alcohol, which made everybody a drunk epileptic, I was a really good RA. You should really know that about me. Like, best party buster ever. This guy right here. This guy. Okay. So, I'm a stubborn son of a gun. When I got, as I got educated, I said, there has to be a way to beat epilepsy. There must have been a time in history when we didn't have to use epilepsy drugs. Let me tell you about epilepsy drugs. Anticonvulsants, man, I've been on four. I've been on Dilantin, Tegretol, Depakote, Depakine. I've been on them all. There's all sorts of reasons they're horrible. The worst part of it is, inevitably, your organs are getting eaten up. They are. You get your blood checked every six months to make sure your kidneys are still functioning, right? So this is me in college. I want to beat epilepsy really bad. I've graduated from UAF. Now we're about the mid-2000s. My wife is getting her master's. I'm working for UAF full time. I'm so good at busting parties. They're like, do it all the time, Adam Berkey. Just do it. Kick in those doors. Do it. So I did. Anyways, so we're at UAF, and my wife wants to go study. It's like a Saturday afternoon. I couldn't tell you the date. I can tell you it was beautiful. It was probably spring. 
She wants to go on a Saturday afternoon Rasmussen Library to study. I love her, she's the best thing ever, rock. She brings me back from seizures, she's amazing. Best thing I ever did was marry her, but she's a nerd. So on a Saturday afternoon, we went to the library and we hung out, and she was studying for her master's, and I started going through the old Dewey Decimal System, started looking up things on epilepsy and trying to beat grand mal seizures. And it didn't even take long for me to find a book that explained, we're going to teach her, Adam, really, really quick. Your brain, right? It's a computer. It's a computer. It has electrical impulses, and those electrical impulses fluctuate. They don't do it at one time. They're a little bit sporadic, as they're designed to be, if you have a normal brain. In my brain, those electrical impulses all fire off at one time, causing me to have basically like a brain-computer reboot. It's the spinning wheel of death, except I'm on the floor, and it's not fun for anybody who's standing around watching, okay? So, marijuana for whatever reason, makes it so those impulses can't fire at once. They can't. It's not in everybody. It's not for petite mal seizures. But for me, it was a godsend. I haven't had a seizure in 10 years, and in the last seven years, I haven't been on epilepsy medication. Hey, thanks. Hey, thanks. Right? Thank you. I found out really quickly that in the late 1800s, they would have given me cannabis. It was only after we made things illegal that they'd stop doing that. And so I started experimenting, and here I am all these years later. I don't have seizures anymore. I do smoke a ton of weed. I do, man. I smoke a lot of weed. That's just what it is. I'm not a burger, smoke weed. Everyone knows it. Okay, now, so when it comes to why, 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 why did I write this? Marijuana saved my life and my health. It emotionally, it helped bring me back from those times where I was a scared little boy and I could feel like I trusted people again. Brought my anger level down, which I'm just naturally gifted with, as anyone who's ever been around me can tell you. Um, and it made me just a genuinely better human being. There are people that said I shouldn't have done it as a teacher. I disagree. I disagreed completely. I taught my kids to stand up what, for what was right and to never ever back down and to tell the truth even though it's really scary sometimes. And when you put your whole life out there, you might get wrecked, but you do it anyways because it's right. And to me, the drug war is offensive. And for me to not say anything to my students would have been hypocritical. And that's not how I was gonna end it with my kids, not ever. I wrote the letter because there are sick people out there and they need marijuana and they're scared to death to even talk about it. And it shouldn't be that way. And don't tell me they're not because my doctor was too scared to prescribe it when she knew damn well that's what was stopping my seizures. And I also wrote that letter because I knew that you, Juno, were ready. I love this town. You rock. Good night. Our next speaker is Pete Griffin, and Pete moved to Juneau in 1999, and he never left. He retired from the Forest Service in 2010 and spent his time fishing, hunting, and searching for audiences that will listen to his stories. Each summer for the past six years, Pete has entertained passengers on board Disney and Princess cruise ships with stories about living off the land, glaciers, and animals found in Alaska. His most recent project is a one-man performance, Diary of a Forest Ranger, filmed at 360 North and broadcast statewide last year. Please help me welcome Pete to the stage.
So in 1980, I'm a, I'm a young wildlife biologist working for the Forest Service in Michigan, and, and I am worried about an endangered species. The, the Kirtland's warbler is only 400 of these birds left in the whole world, and they nest in a, in a, just a, across a few counties in northern lower Michigan. Now the, the problem with this bird is it nests in stands of young jack pine. Now jack pine is a species of a tree that, that requires a fire for it to reproduce. Its cones are so hard they do not open up until the forest burns in a forest fire so intense that it kills the trees but the cones will open up and the seeds will drop onto the ground and a new stand of jack pines born. And that's where the warblers nest but we can't tolerate the risk of forest fires anymore. The, 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 the threats to life and property are too great. Forest Service in the state of Michigan have have done a good job in eliminating forest fires from the, from the ecosystem, and as a result, the bird is on the brink of extinction. But we have a plan. We clear-cut large areas of jack pine for pulpwood, leaving the tops and the branches in these large clear-cuts, and then when the weather is just right, we go out and we burn these clear-cuts. The limbs and the tops burn up, the cones open, drop the seeds, and the warblers can nest there again but we're falling way behind on our goals, way behind. And I know what the problem is. The problem is the Forest Service isn't committed. Oh, the weather's not right. Oh, we don't want to pay overtime. Oh, the bulldozer's broken down. The bird's going extinct. But on the morning of May 5th, 1980, conditions seemed just perfect. They start a fire on a 200-acre Crane Lake unit, and the fire is burning very nicely across the middle of the unit. Flame lengths are about a foot, a foot and a half high, and it's doing very nicely. And then the fire burns into several piles of slash near the fire control line, and the fire goes 5, 10, 15 feet up, and the smoke and column carries embers over the fire line, starting fire spot fires on outside the fire line. But that's expected. We have crews there to take care of that, to put those out. My friend Jim is on the dozer, and his job is to locate those fires with his bulldozer, drop his fire plow, and plow a line around these little spot fires, and hand crews can put them out. But there's spot fires here, and there's spot fires there, and there's spot fires over there. There are so many, and then a spot fire starts in a stand of very short jack pine, and the, the, the trees erupt in flames, and those flames are carried up into the tops of the mature jack pine, and a crown fire starts and a column of smoke builds 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, carries embers over the state highway 100 yards to the east. Well, folks who have been around crown fires will tell you it's like standing next to the railroad tracks when a freight train rolls by. The air pulses and there's a roar and you can almost feel the ground shake. You're being sucked into it. When a crown fire starts, there's nothing a human being can do to put it out. But Jim takes his dozer across the state highway, starts, starts putting in a line on the other side, drops his fire plow, and he chases the fire, and the wind swirls. And Jim disappears into the smoke of what has become the, the Mac Lake fire. Now, while all this is going on, I'm 90 miles away at work, and I hear rumors of a big fire in Mayo, and at the end of the day, I go home, I turn on my black and white television, and there, there's a banner growing across the bottom of the screen. 
The Oscoda County Sheriff's Department requests all available personnel and heavy equipment to report to mild a battle of forest fire that's burned thousands of acres, 40 homes, and resulted in one fatality. Within minutes, I get a call from my supervisor, Pete, get your fire gear together, we send on a crew to mile. So I pull on my green fire pants and my yellow fire shirt, gather my fire gear, and I head for the office, and I join a, a crowd of quiet firefighters standing in the parking lot in the twilight. I see Cliff, the, the fire staff officer, and I go up to him, Cliff, who died? His face is a mask when he turns to me. Jim Swiderski says, Jim, well, that can't be right. Well, Jim and I are both young wildlife biologists. We, we, we had just gotten together at a meeting just, just a couple of months ago. We, we, we talked about how things would be different with the wildlife program if we were in charge. We compare notes on how much fun it is operating a bulldozer on the fire line. Jim, that can't be right. People don't die in forest fires in, in Michigan. Well, the next morning I'm on the fire line. Uh, it's green on one side, black on the other, and I, I wander out into the black. There's no fire left. Tendrils of smoke curl up from the ground. I stand among the blackened skeletons of, of, of jack pine, branches arched toward a blue sky, and in the tops of those branches I see cones that have opened, and I look on the ground and there are seeds scattered all over the ground. The next spring rain, those seeds will germinate. Kirtland's warblers will nest here. Well, there's an investigation. Things went wrong. Mistakes were made. And, and every mistake compounded the results of the mistakes made before. I know if I'd been in charge that morning, I would have started that fire too. If I had been on that bulldozer, I would have done the same things that Jim had done. Well, seven years later, the first warblers nested in the Mack Lake burn. Twenty years later, there's a thousand birds. Thirty years later, there's four thousand Kirtland's warblers and they're no longer on the brink of extinction, and that's a good thing. But today, I ask myself the same question I did standing in the black of the Mack Lake fire. Is saving a species from extinction worth the price of a young man's life? Our next speaker is Bryn Fluharty. Bryn moved to Juneau from Seattle, apparently for the sunny northern winters. She's a tree hugger by profession and in her free time enjoys attempting long distance runs, climbing mountains, and knitting. Nothing about Australia in her bio. Sorry, I have the plague, apparently, so if I start coughing, it's going to be okay. So when I was young, I was a teenager, and I used to dream about who and what I was going to be when I grew up. And this was really based around a very realistic um, view of the world, which was Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. 
So there I was in my imagination, strolling the streets of Paris or New York, cigarette in hand, and designer boots and designer clothes smoking hot in these amazing big cities. So by the time that I hit my early 20s, I had not moved to New York, nor had I moved to Paris. I was instead in Seattle, and that is not the ca fashion capital of the world. Instead of designer boots, I had Birkenstocks with socks. So um, I decided that instead of going for the cigarette, I was going to go for the Seattle hip instead of the Paris chic. And this was, of course, in part based off of my previous experience with said cigarettes, which despite getting the long, fancy, chic um, cigarette holder, whatever those things are called, because I'm that cool, um, I got it, but no idea what it's called. Despite that, I would take an inhale, I'd take a puff of that cigarette and immediately collapse into a heap of coughing mess. Apparently, asthma and cigarettes do not mix. So here I am years later, and I finally have the opportunity to put my hipness to the test. I'm at a backcountry cabin right outside of Mount Rainier and with a bunch of friends. So it's after a wonderful day of backcountry skiing, and we're sitting around the table after dinner, and someone brings out the magic joint, and I get really excited. This is gonna be my moment. So they start lighting it up, and I watch as it goes around from friend to friend around the table, and I'm getting kind of nervous and realizing that just like my image of myself when I was younger, um, all of my knowledge of how to smoke pot is based off, a, off of a cobbled together image of TV and movies and those different clips that I've seen throughout the years, so I really do not know what I'm doing. So I watch as it comes around and finally it comes to me and I take it in my two fingers and ready and I pause in part because of, I'm, of my nerves and in part for dramatic effect and finally I raise it up to my lips and inhale. I hold it in. For the first time in my life, I am successful. I'm just so proud of myself. I'm so hip all of a sudden. Well, this hipness lasts for maybe a couple of minutes because all of a sudden, my face starts to go numb. Starts in my lips, starts to move out across my face until I feel like a dentist has attacked my entire cerebral area with his Novocaine, and I become convinced I am allergic to pot, and now discovering this while at a backcountry cabin way up in the mountains. I start to panic and try and try to convince my friends, you guys, you don't understand, I'm allergic, and look, we're all the way up here. You can see Ashford way down there. That's like an hour-long ski. What am I going to do? They laugh. <laughs> so after about half an hour of me sitting there un, um, unsuccessful in my convincing them that I was going to die, 
I realized that I was not actually allergic to pot, but might not be the most hip person when smoking pot. So in the end, I decided that, you know what? Maybe smoking isn't for me. And you know what? Maybe Paris and New York aren't for me either. In fact, Juno is a much better fit than me than either of those cities. And in regards to the really chic hot designer's boots, well, my extra tufts, they're pretty darn smoking. Our next speaker is Jill Carlisle. Jill grew up in Juneau, but out the road, so she has driven the wrong way on one-way downtown streets once or twice. For undergrad, she went to Quest University Canada in Squamish, British Columbia, and then worked as an admissions counselor for a, a year post-graduation. She would love to tell you all about Quest's innovative program, so consider carefully whether or not you want to ask. At the moment, Jill is gearing up for a summer of outside play in both Southeast and South Central and getting ready to move to the big city, Anchorage, in August, where she plans to obey all traffic signs. Jill. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure how many of you remember last May but it was a lot like the past few days have been. Beautiful, sunny days, beginning of spring, not a breath of air or a breath of wind. Basically the perfect time to be on a kayak trip in Southeast, which is exactly what I was doing. Uh, my best friend came up from BC, where she was living, um, and our plan was to leave for Mock Bay, where I was living at the time, go around the south, or excuse me, the west side of Douglas, the back side, uh, and then down Stevens Passage to Tracy Arm, which is the most beautiful place in Southeast Alaska, in my opinion, which is true. Uh, and then we would cross over, head down the Glass Peninsula, up Seymour Canal, do that great little crossing between Oliver's Inlet and the backside of Douglas there, um, and, then, and then come home. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. And we did have beautiful weather, incredible, I mean, we could we could easily paddle 20 mile days um, with that wind and so we had plenty of time to hang out in Tracy Arm um, and went over to Ford's Terror. Uh, and we were just crossing over to, um, to the Glass Peninsula on the day uh, that this story takes place. So uh, we decided, my, my friend Soraya, she didn't wanna do the full crossing all at once so we decided to just bump a little north and cross at the Midway Islands. Um, and I'm not sure how many of you have been to the Midway Islands, but incredible. We stopped there for lunch, uh, and I mean, there's a sea lion haul out, um, all sorts of seabirds there, amazing beach combing. We had the best snacks. Um, it, was, it was incredible. And again, just not a breath of wind, just glass. Uh, and so we, we leave the Midway Islands, pack up all our snacks. Um, the sea lions are sort of escorting us out with their roars. Um, and we pack up all of our food, get in the kayaks, and we start heading for, uh, for Admiralty Island there. Um, and we're paddling, and we're singing, and just enjoying the beautiful day. Uh, and all of a sudden, I get sort of this tickle in my throat and cough a bit. 
Um, and that seems a little weird because we're in the middle of the ocean, basically. Uh, and we have, it's not like I just ate peanuts or anything. Um, there's no reason for me to be coughing. Um, but it's fine, you know, I have some water in like a platypus hydration pack on, my, on the deck of the kayak there. Um, and so I just drink some water, it clears up, no big deal. But then it happens again and again. And Soraya comes over to check on me because it's sort of, it's a pretty violent cough. Like I get this tickle and then, and then it's a very violent and prolonged coughing to sort of clear the sensation from my throat. Um, and so Soraya comes over to sort of check out what's going on and you know, I say, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on. And she says, well, do you think, should we go to shore and, and try to figure it out? And I say, no, no, I think, I think it must be pollen. I think I must be allergic to some sort of pollen. Um, so I'd rather not go to shore. Uh, never mind that I grew up here and have never had any allergies to any of the pollen here. Um, but that's, that was my working hypothesis at first. So I say, no, no, let's not go to shore. We're going to keep paddling. You know, I've got water. I think this will just pass. I'm not sure what it is. Um, and it doesn't. It doesn't pass. And it's getting worse. It's happening more often. Um, and I start to think about mustard gas and soldiers with their lungs burning from mustard gas. And it's like, ugh. Because um, it is, it's like a it's sort of a, it, I almost think like, is this some sort of industrial irritant, like an like industrial chemical that I'm inhaling? And, and I think, well, where's the white gas? Like that's sort of a chemical-like thing that we have. And, you know, the, the white gas is, is carefully packed away in one of the hatches of my kayak. Um, and plus I, I cook on a camp stove all the time with white gas. And it's, I mean, I, again, like the pollen, that doesn't make sense. I've been exposed to that before. Um, and so it's not that, uh, and then I start thinking about, uh, Clive Cussler novels. Um, and I start thinking about, uh, like Polar Shift, which is a Clive Cussler novel that I happen to have read, um, um, among a couple others. Uh, and in, in Polar Shift, um, there's this group of anarchists that, uh, decide that they're going to completely, um, you know, throw the world into havoc by creating a giant magnet that will switch the world's poles. Um, Clive Kessler novels usually don't have like really, uh, clever titles. So polar shift, they're going to switch the world's poles. Um, and you know, the hero Dirk Pitt, the consummate man of action has to come save the day. Anyway, um, I start like the next place my mind goes is, oh, I wonder, I, it's almost like there's some international terrorist group doing, doing some sort of like biological weapons testing here in Stevens Passage. Um, which I don't, I don't seriously think that, but I like kinda seriously think it because this thing keeps happening and there's no logical explanation. Um, we've been singing a lot as well uh, on this trip and sort of like kayak dancing a little bit. Um, and we start to, to perceive these correlations and causations between the songs we're singing and what I'm feeling. And so we're saying things like, don't sing Taylor Swift anymore. Nature doesn't like Taylor Swift. Yeah, Eminem seems okay, but only like his earlier stuff, none of the later stuff. Um, and, but even as we're like kind of making these jokes and coming up with these theories, like it's getting worse and I'm starting to worry that I'm not going to be able to breathe anymore. And I still, like, there's still no explanation. Um, and again, I'm drinking a lot of water to try to clear this. Uh, and eventually I run out of water on the deck of my kayak. So I pop my spray skirt to grab some more water that I have under there and smoke billows out of my kayak. 
And it's this beautiful hand-built kayak. I built this kayak from a kit. It's wood and fiberglass. I'm so proud of it. And so you might expect that upon realizing my kayak is apparently on fire, I might either feel panic that I might be on fire or will soon be on fire or that my beautiful kayak is on fire. But instead, I sort of feel disappointed that this means that I'm going to probably have to jump in the water and it's cold. <laughs> um, but a split second after having that sort of disappointment that I'm going to have to jump in the water, I realize what's going on. And I reach behind my seat and I pull out the bear spray and it's just fuming and it's like all covered in like the rust colored slime that is unaerosolized bear spray. Um, and at first I'm just shocked. I'm like, oh my God, it, I found it. It's the thing. It's so oh God, it's still happening. And then I just throw it and I scream, paddle! And Sri and I just like book it away. Oops. Just book it away from this like still smoking can of bear spray back there. And we get to the beach. We get to the first campable beach. And Soraya says, okay, you're not touching anything. Like you are banned from touching any of our stuff. I'm going to set up camp. You like deal with this situation. Um, and so I am, I'm dealing with the situation and it, it is, it's like everything has been kind of like fumigated inside my kayak and like my mouth is still kind of burning and, and then the like evil rust colored oil slick has kind of gotten all over my stuff. Um, but luckily at this beach, there's a little stream that comes down below tide line. So I feel pretty good about just washing all my things in the stream. And we have some like biodegradable soap. And so I'm washing and I'm scrubbing with um, sand and I'm dunking and I'm washing and I'm scrubbing and I'm dunking over and over and over. And after every iteration of this, I'm washing this little um, thermarest pad and I smell it to see is, you know, is the smell gone? And it's not, and it's not, and it's not. And then finally, finally, the smell is gone. Um, and I think, well, you know, I do have one other sense that I could use to figure out whether or not the bear spray is really gone. And so I sniff it one more time, and then I lick it, and my mouth is on fire for the rest of the night. That's it. Thanks. Thanks.